Well, David said, and I'm sure that Becca's right there next to him, maybe Ford and River, that they are watching us. So how about if we kind of turn and we just stand up for a minute and we just clap for them or tell them that we miss them? They desperately wanted to be here after missing two weeks. They had a wonderful vacation, but probably on the airplane, they picked up that virus. Um, David called me yesterday at 10.30 in the morning, and he said, uh, Dad, you aren't going to have the kids today. <laughs> we always watch them on Saturday and um, bring them to church on Sunday. We have so much fun. So Ford and River, if you're watching, Grandpa is so sorry that you got sick. Um, but then a half hour later, David called, and he said, I've got it too. And he said, Dad, would you mind speaking? <laughs> and so I said, David, I'll do my very best. And I'm no David Johnson, but I am happy to open up God's word and to just share the truth of it. It transforms our lives. Um, I've been thinking quite a bit about my life story because in August, it will be 50 years ago that I made a commitment of my life to Jesus. 50 years. I've somehow picked August 2nd as that memory date, but I was wrestling with all of the implications of giving my life to Christ prior to that day. And I can remember walking on a sidewalk underneath some maple trees in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where finally I just said, okay, God, I believe it, and I'm yours. And I didn't even have to say, if you'll take me, because he had been chasing me down. That's what God does. If you're here today and, and you just aren't exactly sure how God fits into your life and, and what he wants for you, I hope that the message today will kind of ring true with you a little bit. I have been doing just a lot of reflecting on what God would want me to do during this stage of my life in terms of both uh, the internal workings of God, but then also the expression of God that should come out of my life into other people's lives as I meet with them. And I've been praying and praying for over two years now, and I keep hearing the echo of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where there is just this clearness that God is trying to get a point across to you that should define who you are. And during this 50-year journey, there have been so many times where he said, stop doing this and start doing that. And, and what I've been listening to his gentle whisper saying is be a person of love, and be a person of grace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, David said, Dad, uh, how are you going to be preparing this? Because a pastor takes a couple of days at least to prepare something. I said, well, I've been working on what I think I'm going to share for two years. <laughs> I've been trying to listen to what God had to say, this whole subject of love and loving people in a deep and personal way, honoring them by my attention and by ways which I can serve them. And then the whole concept of biblical grace, 
These are the two foundational principles that all of the other topics in recent weeks are built upon. Why do we do communion? Why do we do baptism? Why do we do whatever it might be? Read scripture. All of those. They are based upon the foundation of love, God's love for us, and our reciprocal love for him, and our grace which we've experienced, and then the grace which we can offer new people who come, accepting them just how they are, and inviting them into the greatest adventure of all time. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I would like to read you a passage of scripture. Um, it's in Mark chapter 12, and this is where it talks about love and the standard of love that God has been speaking to me about and wanting reflected in my life. Now, I think that this is something that he wants reflected in all of us, but I can only say that he has been really working on my heart to further define and understand the vastness of his love, but also to understand the vastness of the capacity for a Christian to love. And that is what I want in my life so very much. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. There was this conversation going on between Jesus and others, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. Wouldn't that have been something? Kind of eavesdropping on Jesus and saying, hey, that's not a bad answer. You're doing pretty good. And so this teacher of the law intervenes, and he says, of the, all the commandments, which is the most important? Which is the most important? And if you were a person who was Jewish, and if you had gone to a synagogue, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law made up rules to obey rules. You might think of the Ten Commandments, but that was just a starting point. In order to not disobey the Ten Commandments, they made rules upon rules upon rules so that they specified, for example, on the Sabbath exactly what you could do, what you could eat or what you couldn't eat, how far you could walk. And the list went on and on and on. They were so filled with rules that this teacher of the law thought, I'm going to quiz Jesus. I'm going to see how much he knows about the law. And which is the most important? I wish that we had this teacher of the law's opinion about what would have been most important. But we do have Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, the most important, answered Jesus, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he begins in verse 30, love the Lord your God. That word is agape. Earlier this year, Pastor David went through love, and the word agape is the highest form of biblical love. That's a Greek word used to describe it. Of course, this is in Hebrew, but it is a God's love. It is a level of love, which is the highest level. And then he goes on, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That Hebrew word is cardia, like we get cardiology, and what it reflects is not just the center of what we're being, but our entire cardiovascular system. 
any place that we could prick a pin and you bleed, that's the level of love that we are to have towards God and towards other people. That's how surface ready our love for God is. It shouldn't be difficult to sing songs of love for God because it's just under our skin. Our entire cardiovascular system is this illustration that Jesus used. He said, all your heart. And then he said, all of your soul, which has to do, the, the Hebrew word comes from psyche. It's breath. It's that difficult to explain place which we all know we have. And then he says, and with all of your mind, there the concept is all of your thoughts. So that every day we wake up, and what are our first thoughts? My wife's first thoughts are, I think it has to do with coffee, but, um, but after coffee, it's the Lord. <laughs> For some of you, you need coffee in order to have any clarity of thought. And so... Um, he says, with all of our mind, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says that we're to pray without ceasing. It tells us that throughout our day, we are to constantly be in this sense of awareness of who God is and having a listening ear where he can speak deeply into our heart and then we would be action-oriented where we would decide to follow through on what the Lord is prompting us with. God wants us to be so sensitive to his word and to his prompting, just like I've wrestled for the last two years where I've said, God, what is it that you really, really want me to focus in on? And the first thought was love. And then he said, and with all of your strength. That word strength does have to do with physical exertion, but it also has to do with overall health. So your health, if you have health today, you are to love the Lord your God with your health today. Now, I'm not sure how that's going to be expressed. Um, it may be down on your knees. It may be serving other people. But this is what God really wants. He wants, um, he was telling this uh, Jewish religious leader that this is the commitment of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And then he goes on secondly, and he says, love your neighbor, and your neighbor means the people close to you, geographically. Now, this poses a problem, at least during our married life. We have never lived in the same house more than five and a half years. We've always been kind of nomads. And sadly, we didn't get to know very many of our neighbors. This really spoke to my heart. So where we're living now, we are getting to know every neighbor, and we are trying to express love to every neighbor, and we are trying to be helpful in any way that we can be. There was a woman who was having her eyes dilated, and she needed to have somebody go and pick her up at the ophthalmologist. And I said, I'll go, I'll go, because I want to be next to my neighbor. And um, I want to... Uh, show my faith before I share my faith. Does that make sense? I think that one of the problems that we've had recently, because Christianity, at least in California, doesn't seem to be real popular, and I think it's because we sometimes talk more than what we live the way God would want us to. 
God really wants us to express our faith by being unique individuals that people would say, why are you like that? You can say, I wouldn't be, except that Jesus has changed my life. And there are so many examples of that in Scripture. And then he said, there is no commandment greater than these. That we're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we're to love our neighbor, the people who are close to us, as ourselves. One of the really fun things we have on Saturday is River and Ford will come over and River will put on her little apron. She has a little baking drawer in our kitchen. She's uh, just five years old. So River, you make very, very good brownies. Grandpa wants to say that. Very good cookies. And then what will happen is Lynn will package them up and oftentimes Ford will join right along and then bring some new fresh baked goods to somebody in our immediate neighborhood. And it is just a joy, and what a wonderful opportunity for a little river to see, yes, this is what neighbors do. This is a normal thing, that we are open to new people. Our circle is never closed. There are always new people who should be invited, and when they come, they need to be welcomed. It was quite a number of years ago, um, I don't know if you know, but Converge, and that's the name of the group of churches that we are a part of. It used to be called the Baptist General Conference. But the word Baptist is so confusing that they decided that they were going to find a word that would bring everyone together and not offend people just with a word which isn't really even in the Bible except maybe John the Baptist. And so you try to get two Baptists in a room and you have three opinions. Okay, that's one problem. Well, they had thousands of people trying to figure out what name, and somehow they came up with Converge Worldwide, that we come together in order to expand the kingdom of God globally. And this ministry of Converge Worldwide has been one of the most effective church planting ministries in the world. It's just amazing. So much of it began right here in La Crescenta. And the dollars that were given to support people who would start churches and new people would come to faith and then they would give money that would help start other churches. It's just this amazing story. If you're ever interested in the history of some of it, I gave David a book that somebody had written about it. And I think that you would find it very interesting. Well, during this church planting season, my brother and I played a role, and I was asked to go down to a church. It was west of Milwaukee, about 20 miles, and they were having some problems just reaching people and growing. And so I said, sure, I'm happy to go down on a Saturday. And I made my way down to McGuanago, which must be an Indian name from Wisconsin. There are so many. And I rang the doorbell of the pastor, and the pastor came, opened the door, and he said, Hi, Steve, welcome. And then there were, I think, virtually every adult in the church was sitting in that living room or standing, and um, they, he just said, Excuse me, this is Steve Johnson. He's come down, and he's going to be sharing with us a little bit later. And then... They all said, hi, and then 
they started to talk with each other. And I stood there all alone. There are people who are so afraid to come to a church because they're afraid that they're going to be standing here just all by them. They're lonesome. And what happens if nobody talks to me? Or one of the scariest times is when we have that community time and I have to figure out how to talk to somebody who might be a different generation or a different ethnicity or maybe I just am not a very good talker, right? All of that doesn't matter at all. We just, we need to engage with people and share our love. But I was just standing there for about 10 minutes and I was watching all of these different conversations going on and finally 10 o'clock came and the pastor said, well then let's get started. And so I sat down by the fireplace and everybody else had a chair and I said, tell me the best part about your church. Just tell me the best part. And all around the room they said, oh, we're just such a friendly church. Oh, we're just such a friendly church. Universally, everyone said that. And then I stood up and I said, you know, I have to disagree with you. And I saw the pastor's wife start her jaw dropping. And I said, I don't think you're a friendly church. I think that you're a church of friends. Now, do you understand the difference? A church of friends has a closed circle. A friendly church, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. There's a fellow who moved out here to Los Angeles. He's teaching at a private school, and I called him up yesterday, and I said, you've got to come to this church. You just, there's always room for you. So he said, I'll come next week. And so next week, you'll see Dakota Moxon. And Dakota is a school teacher, and he's also a model. And um, somehow he ended up with really good looks, and, um, and, uh, but a wonderful family. I remember the day he was born. We do not want to have a closed circle. We want to have an open circle. So the rest of that time with that church, I said, the situation that you're in is really dangerous because you care so much about each other that there isn't room for anybody else to squeeze in. And although you might feel really good about things, the chances of your survival are very, very low. And about a year later, they stopped meeting. So we need to be a friendly church, right? Can you just say that? Friendly church. And you know what? We are. Have you ever just noticed as we walk through those doors how wonderful it is to be greeted by people? I just, I'm overwhelmed. Today I was kind of standing over there, so I was pretending I was a greeter. And uh, it was just fun getting to know other people. But during these times where we're maybe feeling a little awkward, where we're getting to know each other in the middle of the service, take advantage of that time because it's an open circle. It's an open circle where we all can invite other people to experience the love of Jesus Christ, this agape love. We are told to love like Christ loved. We are told that all people will know that we're Christians if we love one another. That's why there's been such confusion in the last couple of generations about Christianity. We need to show it before we tell it. 
We need to really give ourselves fully to that purpose. And this is what God has just been speaking to my heart. It's like, Steve, you've, you've been a follower of mine for 50 years. Now I want to, you to define your life and your actions by first loving everybody. Don't give up on anybody because I haven't given up on anybody. Not with politics, not with different beliefs. I can reach anybody. But I want you to love authentically everybody that you come in contact with. Secondly, what God has been working on my heart is the whole concept of grace. And grace is not an easy topic. What it means is that you're getting something that you don't deserve. You might have heard it described as undeserved favor. But basically, there's something that you're getting that you didn't deserve. Mercy is different where you're not getting what you do deserve, okay? When you are getting mercy, you should be punished and God is withholding that. that we have a merciful God and praise God for that. But grace, God has told me, needs to be lived out in my life, in my attitudes, and in my actions. And this means that it excludes by definitions things like judgment, self-righteousness, pride, competition, envy, jealousy, and comparison. And the list could go much longer. It means all of a sudden the natural man needs to be washed, just like it said in Isaiah, though your sins may be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. God wants to just purge me of all of those different attitudes. And it's so difficult. It's so difficult to not have attitudes. But if I am to fully embrace grace, that means that people who might not deserve favor are the very first ones that I need to reflect it in a very bold way. In Acts chapter 9, there's a passage of Scripture where this is actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it's very few people remember it. Um, this is during the conversion of a man named Saul, and they do remember this beginning part. And let me just read to you. Uh, it's meanwhile, this is Acts chapter 9, meanwhile Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, at this time people weren't called Christians. People actually were called Christians uh, a few chapters later when they so resembled Christ in the city of Antioch that it says that they were first called Christians there. And he went and he got letters of permission to arrest, and historically he had put to death, and he even stood watching Stephen, the first Christian martyr, be killed through stoning, even as Stephen looked up to heaven as rocks were hitting his head, saying the same words that Jesus did, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, I know who you are. So he was offering grace, Stephen, and that must have shocked this man named Saul, but he was so set on eliminating Christianity 
So on this road, all of a sudden, a bright light flashed from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? Who, who are you? And then think of what Saul must have been thinking when he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, the very place he wanted to arrest Christians. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is a fun story because if you were doing a movie of this, you'd quickly switch over to another scene where there's an older man by the name of Ananias. Now, it's easy to confuse Ananias because there's two of them in Scripture. There's Ananias and Sapphira. They were kind of naughty. If you want to read that story, you can. But the um, story of this man, Ananias, is he is a follower of God in the city of Damascus, and he is very aware of what's going on and the persecution that's taking place. And with Saul, he has three days to contemplate his life and the changes that he needs to make because clearly something bold has happened. He doesn't know if he's going to be blind for the rest of his life. He had heard this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. I can see why he wasn't eating. He was probably just overwhelmed. That's scene one. Scene two is God speaking to this man named Ananias who lived in the city of Damascus, who was keenly aware that there was a visitor coming by the name of Saul who was going to create havoc among the Christians there. It says in verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named uh, Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, Ananias, I don't put anything past God. I think that he could give us visions today. I think he can give us direction. The Holy Spirit has been echoing in my heart about so many different things. And I have had people share with me so many wonderful experiences that are only God-worthy. They cannot be explained apart from the Lord Jesus. And so when Ananias heard this, he answered, Yes, Lord. And the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Now, here's where a lot of people don't read this part. They just read about the Apostle Paul. You ever think that maybe God really cares about your address? He actually knows where you are? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and he is all-knowing, and he was giving some direction to Ananias, who lived in Damascus, on which house he should go to on Straight Street. And then he said, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So now we know what he was doing for those three days, right? He was praying. He was trying to figure this all out. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, he has seen you, come and place his hands 
on him and restore his sight. Now, it just seems like, wouldn't this have been one of the most exciting adventures in all of life? Because Saul becomes Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, and you are being called to lay hands on him and restore his sight and commission him to be a missionary around the world. Well, that's not exactly how Ananias saw it. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man. I have heard about his reputation. I've heard what he is like. All of us have a past. The amazing thing is God gives us a bountiful future beyond all that we can ask or imagine. But Ananias, even though he was a disciple, a learner of God and a worshiper of God, he was in fear because of somebody's past. Clearly, he had forgotten that he had a past. Or he didn't believe that God could change somebody as vile as Saul was. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you have lots of regrets, oh, is this good news for you? Because I just can't imagine any of you doing the terrible things that Saul did, and yet he was redeemed. There is this invitation for you today to have an absolutely changed life. And so, um, Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, and if you look in the Bible, there's an explanation after one word. Go! <laughs> I felt like over these last two years as I've been praying about God. What should I define my life with? He's been saying, love, grace. Listen to me, listen to me, and then do it. And so after this took place, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. He was to go and reach people who are non-Jewish, and it says, and their kings. See, I don't know how often we read this. This was the birth of a missionary's heart. Saul doesn't even know it yet. But Ananias has been told it. What would happen if we put on the eyes of Ananias and saw the potential that Jesus was telling him about everyone we see? Rather than looking down on them, instead we run to them. And then he said, and before the people of Israel, he'll also reach them. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. And if you read in the book of 1 Corinthians, at the end, the Apostle Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In most every way, he was broken, but he experienced God's favor and God's mercy and he became such an example to each of us who are here. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, and this is where I get goosebumps, okay? Here is where Ananias experiences grace to give, not just grace to receive. I want you to just pay very close attention here. 
because he goes in, walks into the house, he knew the address, and he ends up seeing Saul there, and rather than reluctantly placing his hands on, he says, Brother Saul. That's complete grace, right? That's complete grace. You're part of my family. I was scared to death of you. I was, I was arguing with God about whether or not you had the capacity to be saved. But God spoke to me, and he spoke to me deep in my heart, just like in my life, God has been saying, grace, grace, grace. Don't look past anybody's potential. And then he laid his hands on Saul and says immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He looked into the eyes of Ananias and Ananias, I'm sure, looked into his eyes and grace took place. And then he got up and it says he was baptized. In a three-day time period, from an encounter on this road to Damascus, going blind, being led by others, being in prayer, not eating, having, in a completely different scene, Ananias wrestling with God in terms of obedience about grace, now having his eyes restored and his commission to serve God with love and grace, we have the birth of the greatest missionary of all time. I don't know if you've been wondering what it is that you are supposed to be shaped into being, but I can tell you that God has some very special plans might not have anything to do with hair length or hairdo or um, wrinkles or not wrinkles, but he wants to shape your life in a special way. I sometimes will put words down on a piece of paper that I call poems, but a professor would never call poems, okay? And 30 years ago, I wrote a poem called The Sculptor. And just let me read this to you as we're about to close. Carving with mallet and chisel from a rough and natural state, a vision owned by the sculptor, Jesus, begins to take its shape. His goal, a priceless original, admired by all who view, an inner revealed beauty to which others have no clue. Seeking to uncover the essence deep within its core, with skill removing the excess an emerging form, a door. Its potential now before us, laid bare for all to see. I stand in awe and wonder, what could come of me? Buried beneath the surface, not obvious with human sight, known only to the sculptor, an image of me shines bright. Ragged edges must be altered. His chisel reaches deep. Width and depth add beauty as you brush away the heap. This artisan's tools are ancient, once used to shape his life. The chisel, a nail that pierced him, 
resulting from mankind's strife. An invitation delivered, the sculptor, faithful and true, a priceless original unveiled, his likeness emerging in you. So what is that likeness? What is the foundation of all of the things which we do as a church? It's love and it's grace in abundance. And what is that echo that I have been hearing for two years and have wanted to bring clarity to and Lynn has heard me share many times. I think God just wants me to focus in on love and grace. I don't think he wants me to dispute uh, political arguments with people. I don't think that he wants me to get wrapped up in all of the, the things of this world. I, I just really think that he wants me to walk into this world with just love and grace. And in that, I might show Christ before I share Christ. Now, how about you? Christianity is about you being washed white as snow. It is about a future and a potential beyond what you could imagine, not only here, but once we pass away. I keep telling Lynn that my favorite breath will be my last because I can't wait to see what God has for me. Here on earth, we have five senses. What happens if we have 100 in heaven? Wouldn't that be just so cool? God has things beyond what we could ever ask or imagine for those who have followed him. And so Jesus dies on a cross to pay for mankind's sin and offer an invitation. And then early in his ministry, he would look at people and he'd say, follow me, follow me. And Peter and James and John and Philip, they followed. Then you have this rascal named Matthew who thought that money would buy contentment and he ends up offering the same invitation and Matthew's life has changed forever. Do you want a forever changed life? Just because we're here does not mean that we have moved to that place where we have offered Christ our life. We have received his invitation. It'd be wrong to think that. For me, it was 50 years ago, after contemplating everything that this was going to cost me, that I finally stopped under a maple tree, and I said, okay, God, I'm all in. So would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your heads in prayer? If you can relate to the story that I'm sharing with you, not only how I'm seeking to live today, but what saved me, and God really did save me, I would have been just an absolute mess. Let me just ask you this. Have you come to the place where you've met God under that maple tree? Where you've said, I'm all in. Here's how simple it is. Acknowledging that, what he, that he's true, that he died for you, and that he's offering you 
this amazing gift of eternal life, but not only that, but a transformed existence today, and for you to respond by simply opening up your heart and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. A lot of times we do it through prayer, although the words have nothing to do with saving you. It's the attitude of your heart where we just say, Lord, this might be really new to me, but I feel this morning like your Holy Spirit's working on me and I'm all in. I'm really all in. Then there's others of us who are here who are wrestling like I have. God, what is it that you want to define my life with for the rest of my life? And maybe you're hearing these echoes, just these echoes, and you want to respond by saying, God, I'm going to be all in. Now, other heads are bowed, but if either of those reflected your heart today, would you just slip up your hands so that I would be able to see? Thank you. Thank you. This is beautiful. This is beautiful because church is about taking incremental steps closer to Christ, becoming a Christian, and then moving on. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful day. Love and grace. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for nearly 50 years ago wrestling with me until under that maple tree in the summer of 1972 I opened up my life to you and Lord you changed me Lord as I prayed over the last couple of years what type of a man you want me to be these words have echoed of being love and grace I just pray, God, that you would reflect those through this broken vessel. And I pray, God, for those who are making decisions today whether to, for the first time, fully commit their lives to you or that they've been listening to this echo of what their life can become and they are responding to that. Just be with them in a great way. Thank you for this wonderful church, this church that is a friendly church, not a church of friends. May you bless it. May this outreach grow to establish itself in the Los Angeles area so that many, many people will hear the message of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much. Quite a number of you raised your hand, and we always have people up here who are ready to pray. And it can be kind of awkward, you know. Uh, people might see you, right? That's not a bad thing. Um, and so I would like to encourage you to just be prayed for, whatever decision you're making. And um, really, all of us need to make decisions every day about how much more we can give of who we are to the greatness of who he is. So this ends the service, and thankfully, Pastor David, you will be here next week. And Ford and River, Grandpa loves you. And Becca, you are the best daughter-in-law in the world. Um, church is not the same without you. And amen to that? Amen. amen. And so please stand. Please greet somebody that you don't know. How about that? Let's not have a closed circle before you leave. And thank you so much for coming.